0: So this morning, we're starting a brand new preaching series on the lives of Isaac and Jacob. Now, let me give you the history. Two years ago, we started the book of Genesis. We started off with Genesis 1 through 11, studied creation, humanity's fall into sin, and the spread of sin throughout the world, Genesis 1 through 11. Then last year, we did the life of Abraham from Genesis 12 through 25, powerful series on Abraham's life. And now this fall, we're going to be studying the lives of Isaac and Jacob, Genesis second half of Genesis 25, all the way through to Genesis 36. And this morning, what I want to do is set the stage for this series by raising three crucial questions. And I'm praying that at the end of these questions, you'll be like, I want to study the lives of Isaac and Jacob. Let's go. I'm I'm looking forward to this. So here's the questions. First, Why should New Testament believers study the Old Testament? And second, more specifically, why should we be excited about studying the lives of Isaac and Jacob? Why are they important? And then third, how does Moses, in the book of Genesis, set the stage for showing us the importance of Isaac and Jacob? How does he set the stage for helping us to understand the significance of their lives? So those are the three questions we're going to work on this morning. Then next week, we're going to dive into the life of Isaac and study away. So first, why should New Testament believers study the Old Testament? And if you hold your Bible open, you can see almost three-quarters of the Bible is the Old Testament. That's Genesis through Malachi, 39 books. And you've got the New Testament, almost a little more than a quarter, uh, was it 27 books, Matthew through the book of Revelation. So you've got Old Testament, you've got New Testament. So if the Old Testament is old, why should we study the Old Testament when we've got the New Testament? Okay, that's the question. One reason is, as Jesus said, the Old Testament is perfect truth from God himself. God specially gifted the Old Testament authors, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah. He specially gifted them to write perfect truth from God himself. And so the Old Testament is perfect truth from God. Not only that, the New Testament authors often quote from the Old Testament and refer to the Old Testament, which means that if we want to understand the New Testament, we need to read the Old Testament. Does that make sense? So we'll understand where the quotations are coming from, what the events are that are being alluded to. To understand the New Testament, we need to read the Old Testament. And there's a third reason I want to give you that, that you might be surprised by. I was surprised when I saw these scriptures. The New Testament tells us that the Old Testament was written not just for Israel, but for us, New Testament believers. The Old Testament wasn't just the book for Israel. The Old Testament was written also for us. Let me show you three scriptures which teach this. First, Romans chapter 4, verses 20 through 24. Such encouraging scripture that Paul writes. Here's what he says. He's talking about Abraham. No unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God. that he, Abraham, grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was, and here Paul quotes from the Old Testament, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Then he goes on, but the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted. Perfect righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Now, here's what's going on Abraham was a sinful man, just like you, me, we've all sinned. And yet, Abraham was counted perfectly righteous before God. How? Not by Abraham trying to be good enough, but by faith. Alone, by trusting all that God promised to be to him in the Messiah, God counted his faith, his weak faith, his imperfect faith, but God counted his faith as a lifetime of perfect righteousness. And Paul says those words weren't just written for Abraham's sake or for the people of Israel's sake. Those words were written for your sake, New Testament believer. God had Paul write those words so that you could read those words in Genesis 15. So that you could study those words in Genesis 15. So that you could be strengthened by those words in Genesis 15. So that you'd know, this is how I can be completely righteous before God. Not by trying to be good enough, but by trusting all that God's promised to be to us in the Messiah, Jesus. So God had Moses write Genesis 15, not just for the people of Israel, but for you, for us, for New Testament believers. Look also at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 9-11. through 11. Here's what Paul writes. He says, We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them, some of Israel did, and were destroyed by serpents. And that's referring to Numbers 21, 5 through 6. Nor grumble. Let's not grumble. As some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. That's a reference to Numbers 14. Now look at verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example But they were written down for whose instruction? Our instruction. New Testament believers' instruction. So these events from the book of Numbers were written down, not just for the people of Israel to read and learn from, they were for that reason, but also so that we, New Testament believers, could read and learn from them. So God had Moses write the book of Numbers, not just for the nation of Israel, for us today to study, to learn from. One more passage on this point. 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12. Here's what Peter writes. Concerning this salvation, the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time The Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, these Old Testament prophets, that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you. Now there's a lot in these verses. Notice that in the Old Testament, the Spirit of Christ, that is the Holy Spirit, was giving the prophets what to write. So they were writing. And so the Old Testament prophets, they want to write about the Messiah. So they are inquiring and searching carefully about who the Messiah would be, when he would come, and how he would suffer and then be glorified. Not only that, but God revealed to these Old Testament prophets, this is amazing, that what they wrote was not just for them, not just for Israel, but for us, for New Testament believers. So when Isaiah wrote like Isaiah 53, he knew he was writing this for the people of Israel, but he also knew he was writing this for those who would be believing in the Messiah after the Messiah, the suffering servant, had come. Isaiah knew he was writing this for us as well. And as Jeremiah wrote his prophecy, he knew that he was writing this not just for Israel, but for us as well. And when Moses was writing the book of Genesis, and when he was writing about the life of Isaac and Jacob, he knew that he was writing this not just for Israel, but for us as well. Now here's the picture that I had. If sometimes we feel like if if we read the old testament, it's like we've got an envelope, a sealed envelope, and it's to the nation of Israel. And we, we feel a little uncomfortable. Like should we really be reading Israel's mail? I mean, but see, it doesn't just say to Israel. The envelope says to Israel and to the church, to New Testament believers. That's what God has said about the Old Testament. So read the New Testament. Beautiful, glorious New Testament, and read the Old Testament because the Old Testament was written not just for Israel but for us. That's one of the reasons we are going through the Book of Genesis together here as Grace Church. And now let's get more specific and ask this second question: Why should we study the lives of Isaac and Jacob? A little bit obscure, maybe. Who are those guys? Why? Why should we? Take time Friday mornings here. Lots of things we could be talking about. Why study the lives of Isaac and Jacob? And to explain why, let me show you how important the name of God is, that God is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Look at Exodus chapter 3, verse 15. Here's what God says to Moses about his name. And feel the weight of this. Exodus 3.15 God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, very important name of God. And look at what Peter says when he preaches in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 3. He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. It's that God who glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. So one of the most important descriptions of God is that God is the God of Abraham, he's the God of Isaac, and he's the God of Jacob. And what this means is that when you study the life of Isaac, for example, and you you find out who his God is, you know that Isaac's God is the true God, the creator of the universe, because God said, I am the God of Isaac. Isaac. So you figure out who Isaac's God is, that's me, the true God. And the God of Jacob is the true God. And when we study Isaac and study Jacob, we not only grow in our knowledge of who God is, we see how God relates to them and we see how they relate to God. So we can grow in our knowledge of God, how he relates to us, how we relate to him by studying the lives of Isaac and Jacob. Now let me give you a couple of examples. In Genesis 26, we see Isaac facing trouble from some of his neighbors kind of strange we'll be coming to this in a few weeks but isaac dug a well sort of drawing water from the well and isaac's neighbors came to him and said oh, oh that's our well isaac says oh okay let them have the well i'll go dig a different one so he goes off and digs a different well and starts taking water from it and the neighbors come and say oh, oh that's our well too and so isaac can figure out this is not going in a helpful direction this is trouble. He's trying to get the wells, and, and the neighbors keep claiming them, and so he doesn't know what to do. And he starts to be full of fear what's going to happen with these neighbors who obviously aren't very gracious. But God comes to him and encourages him with a promise. Look at Genesis 26, verse 24. I love this verse. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So here we see the God of Isaac coming to him when he's fearful, Isaac's fearful, God comes to him and consoles him, comforts him with the promise, listen, I will be with you. Don't worry about these neighbors who are harassing you. And see, this is the God of Isaac, and God has said, I am the God of Isaac. So we know the God of Isaac is the true God, the God who's created everything. He's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here we learn how God relates to us. And I just want to, I'm sure some of you this morning are probably struggling with some fear in some areas, Uh, maybe work difficulties, maybe some health concerns that you're battling or some financial pressures that you're struggling with. Maybe it's a It's a wayward child or a relationship situation. But but some of you, I'm sure this morning, are battling with fear. Now, here's the good news. The God of the universe, the God of Isaac, when we are battling with fear, he cares about us. He will come to us and comfort us through his promise, the promise that he will be with us. And so I would encourage you, if you're battling fear, don't battle it alone. God wants to come to you and encourage you. And so take some time, kneel down by your bed or kitchen table, open up the Bible to where he says, I will be with you and pray over that promise. God will use that promise to relieve your fear, to fill you with peace. You'll have the strength that you need and God will work in your situation. But we learn that from seeing how God relates to Isaac because God is the God of Isaac. Here's another example. Jacobs, I love this, he served his father-in-law Laban, we'll, we'll get to that story, and God just richly blesses him. I mean, cattle, sheep, oxen, just massive wealth is brought to Jacob as he serves his father-in-law. And so, how does Jacob view these blessings that God has given to him? How does he view them? And look at what Jacob says to God about these blessings in Genesis 32.10. This is amazing. I would encourage you to memorize this verse. He says to God, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. I'm not worthy of the least of what you've done. See, the reason is because Jacob knows he's sinned against God. He knows that all he deserves from God is, is punishment forever. That's all he deserves, is punishment. He knows that these blessings are blood bought gifts, mercifully, graciously, undeservedly given to him. And so Jacob humbles himself before God and says, I'm not worthy of any of your blessings. Now, this is a crucial truth about the God of the universe. This is the God of Jacob, the true God. And when he gives us blessings, Let's not be deceived into thinking it's because somehow we've earned them by our goodness or deserved them in some way. None of us can ever be good enough to earn or deserve anything good from God because of our sin. It's just so important just to humble ourselves before God and acknowledge that. And yet the beautiful thing about God is He lavishes blessings and favor upon unworthy people like me and like you. And so I would encourage you to take some time and humble yourself before God and say, I'm not worthy of the least of the blessings you've given to me. That is such a powerful statement. That you will be relating to God rightly because God is the God of Abraham, he's the God of Isaac, and he's the God of Jacob, as we see here. One more example. Jacob goes to find a wife from his uncle Laban, and we're going to read about how Jacob ends up marrying both Leah and Rachel. But after a time, Jacob's relationship with Laban starts to turn sour. Laban starts to become a little bit bitter, a little suspicious of him. And he can, Jacob he can tell that something needs to be done. He needs wisdom. What should he do? And look at what happens in Genesis 31 through 3. God gives Jacob wisdom. Here's what Moses writes. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers, and to your kindred, and I will be with you. In other words, Jacob, it's time to leave. It's time to leave Laban. Yes, things are getting sour here. It's time to leave. And so the lesson we learn from this is that God does not leave us on our own to make decisions. God loves to guide and lead his people. And he promises to lead and guide us. He promises to give us the wisdom that we need. And that's what Jacob experiences here. So if you are facing a decision, a weighty decision, maybe about work or career, schooling, maybe a weighty decision about marriage or about where to live or what ministry area to go into, you're facing some weighty decision. You do not need to make that decision on your own. And you don't need to be afraid about that decision because God promises that as you seek him, he will guide you and give you the wisdom you need. We see that in how God relates to Jacob. And we know this is what God does because God is the God of Jacob. That's how he relates to Jacob. That's how he will relate to us as well. So those are just some examples of why it's so important to study the life of Isaac and the life of Jacob because we'll be learning who God is and how we relate to God. That's where we're headed in these next weeks. And now, one more question for today. How has Moses set the stage for the lives of Isaac and Jacob? How has he set this up so we see the significance of Isaac and Jacob's lives? I thought of an illustration. Imagine, you know, the Gospel of Luke tells the story of Jesus' birth and John the Baptist's birth, So imagine that you opened up the Gospel of Luke and just started reading right where John the Baptist is born. Here, John's born to Zachariah and Elizabeth, and you'd be excited about that. Birth of a baby is always wonderful. But if you started reading right there and didn't see how Luke set up the story so we understand the significance of John the Baptist's birth, you're going to miss the significance. But if you had started at the beginning of Luke and saw that Luke tells us that an angel came to Zechariah and said, a baby's going to be born to Elizabeth. This is going to be John the Baptist. This is the prophet who's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. He's going to be born, and then the Messiah is going to come. Well, that changes everything. Now, as you read about John the Baptist's birth, it's like, whoa. Whoa. This is the one who prepares the way for the Messiah. What's going to happen next? The Messiah is going to be born and is going to come. Do you see the difference it makes to see how Luke sets up the birth of John the Baptist? So the question I want to ask is, how does Moses set up the lives of Isaac and Jacob so we see their full significance? Such an important question to raise. So Moses starts in Genesis 1 and 2 by how God tells us how God creates the heavens, and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's where Moses starts. Now just think about it. At at one moment, all there is in existence is God. The triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, full of joy in their perfections as God. And that's what's been from eternity past with no beginning. So at one point, all there is is God. Then God speaks and A universe exists. And as we see the beauty of this universe and the beauty of the world that God has created and the amazing complexity of our bodies and that we have, you know, apples to eat and we have chicken to eat and we have, you know, sunsets to look at and oceans to surf in, all these different things that that God's given to us, we see God is infinitely powerful to create all this. He's Flawlessly wise. I mean, the the intricacy of our bodies and how they work. He's flawlessly wise. And we see that God is astonishingly good. That he would create a beautiful world like this for us to live in. So that's Genesis 1 and 2. Moses is setting up the stage. He tells us that God creates. Then, tragically, in Genesis chapter 3, Moses tells us that we sin. You know the story. God has told Adam and Eve that they could eat any tree of the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve did what all of us have done. And as they decided they were going to decide for themselves what was good and evil and not trust God, their creator, to know what's best for them as good and evil, they decided they are going to make their own minds up about what's good and evil and they ate of the tree. And that sin, their sin, changed everything. The world came under God's curse. The world was filled with sin, was filled with scarcity, was filled with death. And we all faced God's judgment forever. That's what happened as a result of Adam and Eve and our sin. And and that could very well have been the end of the story. It is not. God is just He does judge sin, he will punish sin, but God is also merciful and compassionate and loving and gracious. And in addition to describing our sin in chapter 3, he also promises salvation. And that's in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. Such an important verse. I hope you all know this verse. I would encourage you to memorize it. Scholars call this the Proto-Evangelium, which is fancy Latin for Proto-First Evangelium Gospel. This is the first gospel in the Bible. This is where the gospel is first revealed in the Bible. Genesis 3.15, three promises. Let's look at them one at a time. First promise, God says, he's talking to Satan. And get the picture, at this point, Satan, Adam, and Eve are all on the same side together. They are in league together. They've all conspired together, they are rebelling against God. And look at what God promises the serpent. Genesis 3.15, he says, I, God, will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman. See, up to that point, at that point, there was no enmity between the serpent and the woman and and Adam. At that moment, Adam and Eve had joined with the serpent and were in full-blown rebellion against God rebelling against God, enslaved in sin. But here God promises that he's going to change Eve's heart. He's going to give her repentance. He's going to give her faith. He's going to change her heart, set her free from sin's power, so she will turn and trust God. That's what God promises, and that's what God does. And he also does it for Adam, although he doesn't state that explicitly here. So this first promise is, yes, Right now, every human being has sinned, Adam and Eve, that's all all the human beings that are there, but I'm going to change their hearts, and they're going to be at enmity with the serpent. That's the first promise. That's not all that God promises. Second promise, God says, and I will put enmity between your offspring, your, the serpent's offspring, and her offspring, Eve's offspring. In other words, God is saying, I'm going to form It's not just going to be the serpent's offspring who are all in rebellion against God. I'm going to create a second people, Eve's offspring, who will be trusting God, in submission to God, living in obedience to God. So there will be two camps of people. There will be Satan's offspring who will be continuing in rebellion against God, and there will be Eve's offspring, those whose hearts God changes so they turn away from sin and Satan and trust God. That's what God promises, and that's what God's been doing ever since. You, who are trusting Christ, are part of Eve's offspring. Now, let me just give you a vision or a picture of what this means for us living here in Abu Dhabi because we are here, again, surrounded by people who have never heard the gospel and who are enslaved to, to bondage to Satan. And we are here as God's people, as Eve's offspring, with the good news of the gospel. Let's not waste this opportunity that we have here. As you ask God, look, God, how can I advance the gospel in my neighborhood? He will tell you how. He has a plan for you. Or what can I do in my workplace? He will guide you and direct you. But here God promises there's going to be two people. Not just sinful people. I'm going to create the offspring of Eve who are going to be believing. And there's one more promise. The most important one, I think. God says, he, namely one of Eve's offspring, shall bruise your head, serpent. One of Eve's offspring is going to bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now what, what's this talking about? God is promising that a human being is going to bruise the serpent's head. And that Hebrew word for bruise can also mean crush, and I think that's more the picture here. It's like if there's a serpent on the ground, you take your heel, and if you go like this, his head won't just be bruised. His head will be crushed. That's the picture that's being described here, I think. So a human being is going to crush the serpent's head. God is promising that, that an offspring of Eve, a human being, is going to destroy the serpent, is going to destroy Satan's power, is going to crush Satan's work. But at the same time, the serpent will crush his heel, which is a much less serious Injury, but an injury nonetheless. Not a fatal injury, but a significant injury. So the question readers of Genesis have in chapter 315 is, Who is the serpent crusher? Who is this? And we know, because we've read the rest of the Bible, Jesus Christ is the serpent crusher. Jesus Christ is an offspring of Eve, right? Fully human. And he's fully God. Fully man fully God. And on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty of sin for all who would put their trust in him. And by dying on the cross, he crushed the serpent's head. Satan's power was broken on the cross. Jesus did that. But in the course of crushing the serpent's head, Jesus was wounded in the process. He died, but it wasn't fatal because he was raised from the dead. Jesus is the serpent crusher. So this is amazing. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, we see Jesus foretold. We see his death on the cross foretold. The third chapter of Genesis, right after the fall, we see God promising the serpent crusher, the Messiah, Jesus. I love this. But now readers of Genesis at this point wouldn't know who the serpent crusher was going to be. So they're wondering, Who's the serpent crusher going to be? Who's the offspring of Eve going to be? And they're wondering, is it, you know, it going to be this person, this person? And so that's one of the, the big stories that's going through the book of Genesis. Who is the serpent crusher? And God gives hints and hints, and he, the, the picture gets clear and clear all the way through the Old Testament. That's what happens. So that's Genesis 3. We sin, God promises salvation. Then in chapter 4 through 11 we see sin spreading throughout the entire world so much so that by the time we come to the end of chapter 11 we can't we, we don't see anybody described there who's who's godly it it looks like at least the impression that Moses leaves us with is just massive spread of sin are there are there any offspring of Eve left? Are, are there any believers left? What's happening here? That's where we come to the end of Genesis 11. And so at the end of Genesis 11, we can wonder, what about God's promises? What about the enmity between the serpent and the woman? Is that still? Is God still changing people's hearts? Where's the offspring of Eve? Where are godly people? When's the, where's, when's the serpent crusher going to come? And in chapter 12, God answers some of these questions by repeating His promise in chapter 12. He repeats His promise. He calls Abraham to leave his country and travel—was it like maybe 500 kilometers south to to Israel, which we now call it—and God promises him some amazing promises. Let's read Genesis 12:1 through 3. Look at what happens right after chapter 11, Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, Abraham. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now here God promises to make Abraham a great nation, to bless him, make his name great, cause him to be a blessing. But notice at the end of verse 3, God says to Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now this is shocking because at that point, from all that we can read, all the families of the earth are cursed. The curse is covering the earth. But here God promises that in Abraham, in Abraham, all the families of the earth, every people from every nation, tongue, and tribe, people from every racial group, every ethnic group, people from every people group on the earth, there will be some who will be blessed. That means the people from every nation, tongue, and tribe, there will be some from each of those groups who will be forgiven for their sins, whose hearts will be changed, who will come into the blessing of knowing and trusting and being reconciled to God. God promises that in chapter 12. And again, God tell, or later, God tells Abraham, This is going to be through one of your descendants. So we've gone from one of Eve's descendants is going to be the serpent crusher. Now we know it's one of Abraham's descendants is going to be the serpent crusher. So the 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 funnel is narrowing, okay? The, The criterion are narrowing here. One of Abraham's descendants will be the serpent crusher who will bring the blessing of salvation to people from all nations, tongues, and tribes. Now, again, we know this is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus was born in the line of Abraham. Jesus is the serpent crusher. And the rest of the book of Genesis, then, tells us, at least the life of Abraham, the life of Isaac, and the life of Jacob, shows us God repeating his promise, giving more and more details and reaffirming it, reaffirming it, reaffirming it, and God securing his promise, protecting it from obstacle after obstacle after obstacle that it seems like is brought up against the promise. Let me just give you some examples. Here's some of the obstacles. Abraham, we love Abraham, godly man, but Abraham sinned in some major ways. Remember when he lies to Pharaoh about His wife, this is just my sister, because Abraham was afraid he was going to get killed because of how beautiful she was. Abraham's just going to kill him and take her into his harem. Remember the story? It's not pretty. Okay, Abraham lies. Oh, she's just my sister. So Pharaoh takes Sarah into his harem. Now that creates a problem. How are Abraham and Sarah going to give birth to offspring who are going to end up giving birth to the serpent crusher if Sarah's in Pharaoh's harem? You see the problem. It's elementary. Okay, it's pretty basic, pretty simple. An obstacle, but God has mercy, delivers Sarah out of the harem. Another obstacle, Sarah can't get pregnant. Years go by, Sarah can't get pregnant. Sarah is now in her 90s, and Abraham is 100 years old. And we're reading this book saying, what about the serpent crusher, which is going to be an offspring of Abraham? we got trouble here. What does God do? He miraculously has Abraham and Sarah conceive and get pregnant. And they give birth to Isaac. Okay? And then God says that it's going to be through Isaac that the serpent crusher is going to be born. So through Abraham's life, obstacle after obstacle, and God overcomes obstacle after obstacle. He repeats the promise about the serpent crusher, and he secures the promise. He protects the promise. And that's what we also see in the lives of Isaac and Jacob. God is repeating the promise, and God secures the promise give you some examples. Here's Isaac, and we know that this serpent crusher is going to be born through Isaac's line, but Isaac needs a godly wife. Where's Isaac going to find a godly wife? They're living amongst people who are godless. Where's Isaac going to find a godly wife? And God removes this obstacle and leads Isaac with Abraham's servant hundreds of kilometers north where God provides Rebekah. Isaac's wife, miraculously leads them to get married together. There's a famine in the land. That's an obstacle. I mean, a famine could kill Isaac, Rebekah, so there'd be no serpent crusher born. Will God provide for Isaac and his family? Yes, we'll see how God provides. Here's another obstacle. Isaac lies to a king and says, oh, this is just my sister, don't kill me. And so the king takes Rebekah into his harem. And of course, that's a problem. How are they gonna give birth to the the offspring who's going to be the serpent crusher if Rebecca's in the harem. So God delivers her and again ensures the coming of the serpent crusher. And then Rebekah does get pregnant, gives birth to Jacob. And we learn that the serpent crusher will be born from the line of Jacob. But what does Jacob do? His twin brother, he steals the birthright. Remember, he deceives and lies. We're going to see this. Steals the birthright from his twin brother, Esau. Esau wants to kill him. If Esau kills that's gonna be a problem. How's the serpent crusher gonna be born? So God delivers. Jacob, obstacle after obstacle after obstacles. That's, that's the, the big picture of the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promise is repeated again and again and again. But obstacle after obstacle after obstacle comes up, and God deals with each obstacle as it comes up. He's securing the promise. He's safeguarding the promise. Nothing is going to stop God from fulfilling the promise of sending the serpent crusher. God has promised, in your seed, Abraham, all the people groups of the earth are going to be saved. There will be the serpent crusher. He is going to crush the serpent's head and free my people from their sin. God has promised and God will do it, and we see God removing obstacle after obstacle after obstacle to do it. Now, let me just give you a couple of of ways this should impact us. Look at God's faithfulness. You see this, God has promised. Serpent crusher's coming, seed of Abraham, people from every people group are gonna be saved, obstacle comes up, every obstacle is thwarted, every obstacle overcome by God. God's just like a steamroller, moving through history. Obstacles come up, uh, crush, crush, crush. Nothing can stop God from fulfilling his promise. He's promised to save. He will save. No obstacle has stopped him from saving. No obstacle will stop him from saving. So this shows us God's faithfulness. This shows us God's power. I hope that this, show, this just deepens even more the assurance of your salvation in the finished work of what God did on the cross because there we see the serpent crusher crushing the head of the serpent, paying for our sins breaking the power of our sin, purchasing new life for for us. God did it, and so we can be assured of our salvation. I pray that one way this is impacting you is you just leave here today knowing that you are on a rock-solid foundation from here to eternity because you're trusting Jesus Christ, the serpent crusher, and what God has promised and has done through him. Now, also this should motivate us to tell other people Tell somebody today, did you know that the serpent crusher has come? And they'll want to know, what, what are you talking about? That may not be the best approach to take, but you know, you, you get my drift. But this is the best news in the world. Especially uh, Muslim people who understand about the fall and Adam and Eve, right? That God promised the serpent crusher, that the serpent's serpent's work would be destroyed. And that Jesus is the serpent crusher who destroyed Satan's work by dying on the cross. What beautiful news. Share that. That's the best news in the world. That's the best news you could possibly share with anyone. So, tell other people the good news. As I was praying about this, I think there's two specific takeaways I, I want to I leave you with. One is this. Are you trusting Jesus, the serpent crusher? Are you trusting him? Because you can hear all about this, and you can even agree that, yeah, that happened, that happened, that happened. But you can hear and you can mentally agree, but you're not saved from your sins unless you trust Jesus. Unless you turn from whatever else you were trusting to save you, whatever else you were trusting to satisfy you, you must turn from those things and put your trust in Jesus Christ to forgive you for your sins, to change your heart to satisfy you in himself. And when you turn and put your trust in Jesus, he will do that. All your sins will be forgiven. From this point on, all your sins, past sins, present sins, future sins, this is is the best news in the world. You can leave here today completely forgiven by God. So God looks upon you with love and with delight because you are righteous in his son, Jesus Christ. You're forgiven through the serpent crusher. And he, from that point on, will be delighting in you, rejoicing in you to do you good with all his heart and soul from now forever. Simply by trusting Jesus Christ. So I I, I plead with you. I'm sure that there's people here this morning who aren't yet trusting Jesus. We are glad you're here Trust him today. Turn to him today. Jesus, I see history. I see Genesis. I see the Old Testament. I see the whole plan. I trust you. I see your love. I see your goodness. I see your reality. I trust you. Forgive me. Change me. Fill me. Satisfy me. And he will. So trust the serpent crusher, Jesus Christ, right now. Trust him. That's the first takeaway. Second one. Are you doubting that God will be faithful to his promises? I wouldn't be surprised that some of you are facing obstacles in your life right now that are so big that it's making you question whether God is sovereign, whether God loves you, whether God will fulfill the promises he's made to you. I'm, I'm sure some of you are facing such significant obstacles that you're doubting whether God will be faithful to his promises or not. But what I want you to see from what we've seen in the book of Genesis is that, like I said, God's like a steamroller. Every obstacle is crush, crush, crush. There's not one obstacle you face that God has all... He's not surprised by it. He's actually purposefully allowed it. Because through that obstacle, he's going to bless you even more, bring you even more joy in him than you would have had otherwise. God's not worried about this obstacle. Listen, no obstacle can keep the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from fulfilling his promises. He will fulfill every promise he's made to you. You can bank on it. You can count on it. So what I want to encourage you with today is trust him. Don't let the obstacles make you doubt his faithfulness to his promises. He will fulfill his promises. You can count on him. We've seen that through the whole book of Genesis. So, two takeaways. Are you trusting Jesus, the serpent crusher? And are you doubting that God will be faithful to his promises? Trust Jesus, the serpent crusher, and trust that God will be faithful to his promises. Let's stand together. God I pray that you would take your word and open our hearts wide so that your word goes deep and, and by the power of the spirit changes us right now I pray Lord for anyone here who's not yet trusting Jesus Christ the serpent crusher God, I pray that that you would so show them your truth, the historical truth of Jesus, the love of Jesus Christ, your faithfulness in sending Jesus, your mercy in making a way for us to be forgiven and changed and filled with your life and your love. God, I pray that you would touch the hearts right now of people who aren't yet trusting Jesus and that right now they would trust Jesus. Please, Lord, I plead with you. Set them free from unbelief. Set them free from from the serpent, Lord, I pray, and save them right now. And God, I pray for those in in our church family here who are facing obstacles. We don't want to make light of them, Lord. Obstacles can be heartbreaking and can be devastating, but oh God, you are in control of those obstacles. And no obstacle will keep you from being faithful to your promises, to each one who's trusting Christ. And so I pray that you would strengthen the faith, of those who are doubting or discouraged because of obstacles, that they would see your love, they would see your faithfulness, they would see your sovereignty, and that they would trust you, trust you. Even though they don't see what's going on, they don't see how this could possibly work for their good, that they would trust you, Lord, and be at peace and be strengthened this morning. So come and do that, Lord, I pray, in Jesus' name.